Well, welcome to the uh, Center for Great Plains Studies and the final Paul A. Olson seminar for this academic year. I'm Jim Steubendick, the director of the center. I want to remind you that these seminars are recorded and are available as an audio podcast. And to listen to that, you just need to go to our website. And the easiest way to get to our website is just Google Great Plains Studies, and we come up at the top of the list. And you can find those uh, podcasts for all the previous uh, seminars, and this one will probably be up by the end of the week. Well, it's an honor to introduce Dr. Robert Oglesby, who is the Professor of Climate Modeling in the Department of Geosciences and also in the School of Natural Resources here at the University of Nebraska. He received his BS from the University of California, Davis, and his PhD from Yale. And he has a wide range of research and teaching interests in climate dynamics from the past through the present and into the future. The title of his presentation this afternoon is Causes of Drought in the Great Plains. Please help me welcome Dr. Oglesby. Okay, again, title slide, and you've just heard that from Jim, so we'll get right to it. Okay, well, if you're going to give a talk about drought, the first question you've got to address is, what is drought? And of course, as I'm sure many of you are aware, there is no simple answer to that question. Okay. Drought is really all about context. Okay. What is the meaning of the drought, or who is the drought affecting? You know, well, of course, drought, well, dry conditions prevail for a period of time. How dry and for what period? It all depends. Really, it all depends on who is being impacted and how. So no one definitive uh, definition exists. Uh, there we go. Droughts in the eyes of the beholder. Most droughts then are defined based on impacts, really, not the underlying weather and climate. In fact, here's four examples of different types of droughts, if you will. Meteorological drought, which perhaps is based on data or observations, uh, because you can talk in terms of percentages of precipitation reductions, amount and duration of dryness, the atmospheric conditions that lead to it. But even then, these definitions really are based on the impact of these dry conditions, more so than the dry conditions themselves. <clears throat> then we have agricultural drought, which is fairly short-term. Crop yields suffer typically due to insufficient soil moisture. So if you're talking about agricultural drought, soil moisture may well be the parameter that you're interested in. It can be as short as a portion of a growing season. If you get three or four weeks of dry weather at the wrong time during the growing season, that can be really bad, okay? I lived in Indiana for years, and we used to have a saying that, uh, you know, three weeks of dry weather in May or June was an unmitigated disaster, a drought of biblical proportions. Three weeks of dry weather in August or September, why, that was called good weather. The farmers did not want rain then. They wanted the corn to be drying in the fields. Then you've got hydrologic drought. That's typically a longer-term drought. River flows diminish and lake or reservoir levels decrease. It may well take several years of more or less continuous drought conditions to really cause a severe hydrologic drought. Uh, this is what's happened in the southeast U.S. over the past several years. Started out, they had a couple of years of more or less agricultural drought, but it built up over enough years to the point, of course, where now all the reservoirs in the southeast are way down. And then socioeconomic drought, when the supply of water for human activities doesn't meet demand. 
typically socioeconomic drought can cut across all of these others, because this is, okay, what does this drought really mean to me? Now, let's get some perspective, okay? You know, we know that in the historic record, in the period of settlement of the Great Plains, there have been some uh, nasty periods of drought, the Dust Bowl, the droughts of the 50s. There were some droughts earlier on. But the thing is, we know from the so-called proxy record, looking at things such as uh, tree rings or um, uh, diatoms from lakes, sort of the kind of thing that Sherry Fritz does, if you know her, we can infer, we don't have direct knowledge or direct measurements of the drought, but we can infer wet or dry periods. And it appears if we go back, say here, going back about 1,000 years, okay, here's the Dust Bowl. But look, all these times in the past, past 1,000 years, all these periods of drought. Back here in the so-called medieval warm period, this is the last time that some of the sand hills were activated. We can take an even longer-term perspective. Okay, here's blowing up the last 100 years, the last 1,000 years, and the last 10,000 years, okay? Back here, times what's, what's called the mid-Holocene, maybe long extended periods of drought. So what we can infer from this, we think about historic droughts versus prehistoric so-called mega-droughts, the Great Plains, okay? They tell us that drought is an ubiquitous feature in the Great Plains, okay? Furthermore, prehistoric drought periods appear to have lasted much longer than historic ones. They may have been more severe, that is, they may have been drier, but from this uh, proxy prehistoric record, it's much harder to determine whether these prehistoric droughts were more intense. But certainly, they lasted for longer periods of time. So really, one conclusion is that despite the droughts that we've had over the past century or so, the modern period of settlement may well have been relatively wet. Okay, so that's a little background on drought in the Great Plains, uh, past and present. The focus of this talk is what causes drought. Well, obviously what causes drought is, as Clint uh, Rowe, one of my colleagues, says, he says, okay, Bob, just go up there and tell them the cause of drought is not enough rain and snow. End of story, okay. Obviously, oops. Obviously, insufficient rain and snow, insufficient precipitation, as we would say meteorologically, is what causes drought. And this may perhaps be augmented by increased evaporative stress. If you have warmer conditions, okay, uh, it, the type of rainfall that under one temperature regime may not really lead to drought, may, if under warmer temperatures, you also have more evaporation. But the key thing is, how can this happen? How can we get this reduction in rain and snow that leads to drought conditions. Okay, so what I'm going to do now for the, um, uh, much of the bulk of this talk is break up into two different types of factors, remote factors and local factors. By remote factors, I'm referring to phenomena, typically far removed from where the drought occurs, that affect the large-scale atmospheric circulation and hence the tendency for rain and snow. Basically, think, think about the, being able to get moisture transported into the Great Plains. I'll show a slide on this in just a minute. 
And these remote factors most commonly are related to fluctuations in ocean temperatures, okay? So-called sea surface temperature anomaly patterns. And these fluctuations, they vary in where they occur and in their length of influence. ENSO, or the El Nino-La Nina combination, is perhaps one of the best known of these, but certainly not the only one. Remote factors are probably responsible for the initiation of most droughts. They set up an atmospheric circulation pattern that's not conducive to a lot of precipitation that persists for a long enough period of time. Conditions get dry enough that we recognize that we're in a drought. Local factors refer to factors here in the Great Plains, and they refer to phenomena such as reduced soil moisture that, that affect precipitation and evaporation where the drought actually occurs, okay? Now, these local factors usually don't induce the drought, but they may strongly influence the magnitude and duration of an already occurring drought. That is, if a remote factor is what initiates the drought, then these local factors can make it longer and worse, okay? Make it drier and make it last for a longer period of time. Okay, so again, remote factors, typically these are the sea surface temperature anomaly patterns. SST is just a shorthand for sea surface temperatures favoring drought in the Great Plains. Two of the best known, there's the classic, the ENSO, the El Nino-La Nina combination. These are tropical Pacific sea surface temperature anomalies. And then more recently, a lot of emerging uh, evidence of something called the Atlantic Multidecadal Oscillation which is sea surface temperature anomalies in the North Atlantic, may also play an important role. And there may well be more. There may be some in the, in the North Pacific, something called the North Atlantic Oscillation, operating on shorter time scales than this Atlantic multidecadal oscillation may be important. Basically, these sea surface temperature patterns, they can induce a drought when an anticyclone, that is, a high pressure system, okay, anticyclone just being really a meteorological term for a high pressure system, is set up or enhanced over a region. In this case, it would be the Great Plains. And what it does is reduce, generally what it does is reduce moisture transport into the region. It may also inhibit precipitation mechanisms, okay, and may also increase evaporation. All three can work hand in hand, okay, and if it persists long enough, Voila, you have a drought. If it lasts for a period of several weeks or a month or two at the wrong period of time, maybe you have an agricultural drought. If it tends to persist at least off and on over a period of several years, maybe you have a hydrologic drought. Okay, and this is just um, some um, from the 1988 drought, sorry, that's a typo there, that should be 1988, just as an illustration of what we mean by moisture transport. This would be sort of a climatological moisture transport, just look at these, these vector arrows indicating the, the uh, uh, direction and the magnitude of moisture being transported by the atmospheric winds. And we see, basically, in the April through June, the primary rainy season for the Great Plains, a lot of moisture coming up from the Gulf of Mexico, moving north, and then ultimately moving east. Our rainfall basically depends on the ability to get some of this to precipitate out over Nebraska and the Great Plains. Now, this is what's called the anomalous moisture flux. So this is, these, notice these arrows are going the other way. This doesn't mean that the transport was going the other way. Read these as 
This is the reduction in moisture transport. Notice these arrows are almost as long as these arrows. So the implication is, is that during the 1988 drought, this moisture transport was almost entirely cut off, thereby leading to dry conditions, thereby leading to drought. Okay, droughts, even drought of a given reason, region usually does not act in isolation, okay? And the drought over much of the U.S. 1998 through 2002 was part of a larger global pattern. This is just showing some precipitation anomalies, or the difference in precipitation from a long-term mean. And we see yeah, dry conditions here a lot over the western U.S., some over the southeast. But notice, it's no coincidence that this goes hand-in-hand -hand with dry conditions elsewhere. There's a large-scale pattern that's taken place, and some regions, as a result of that large-scale pattern change, some regions are getting drier, some regions are getting wetter. So drought, in, in, the term, in terms of these remote factors, a drought at a given location will be part of a larger hemispheric or global pattern. Okay, during the same time, 1998 through 2002, there were some persistent sea surface temperature anomalies in the tropical Pacific. Okay, uh, this is a particular type of, of uh, diagram that we frequently use in meteorology, so I'm not going to really get into explaining it too much, but basically we have unusual warmth in the western Pacific, and we have a multi-year La Nina conditions, or relatively cooler temperatures, in the eastern Pacific. It's quite likely that this sea surface temperature anomaly pattern played a major role in that, on all those areas of drought that we saw on the previous slide. La Nina is frequently indicted as a drought maker in the U.S. And indeed, if we look at sort of a La Nina comp composite, or we look at a, a standardized precipitation index, okay, such as they use at the uh, Drought Mitigation Center out on East Campus, and we relate that to La Nina's, sure enough, oops, sure enough, what it looks like here, at least in the central Great Plains and southern uh, Great Plains, also American Southwest and the Southeast, it looks like during La Nina times, when we have a La Nina sea surface temperature pattern in the tropical Pacific, we tend to have drought. And we can test these things using climate models. I have to put a plug in for climate models, and somewhat to my bemusement, my official title here at UNL is Professor of Climate Modeling. And so here's a simulation using a climate model imposing, we take the model and we say, okay, let there be sea surface temperature anomalies in the, in this case, oops, I'll get the hang of this before the end of the talk, okay, in the Indian Ocean, warm, in, uh, warm conditions in the Indian Ocean. We run the model, and sure enough, over much of the U.S., we get warmer temperatures and reduced precipitation, okay? So this is using a model we suspect, just looking at the data, we suspect there might be a relationship between these sea surface temperature patterns and drought. And now we can actually run a climate model and try and get at the physical ways by which they're linked. Okay. How is it that the sea surface temperature anomalies are impacting drought? Okay, that's been the Pacific Ocean. 
actually some um, work that I've been involved in recently that Song Fang, who is in the audience, has taken the lead in, is we've been investigating the impact of the so-called Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation on, on drought in the U.S., especially in the central U.S. It's only been in the last 10 years or so that a lot of attention has been paid to this so-called AMO, Atlantic Multidecadal Oscillation. Each phase of it lasts about 30 years, so it's 60 years long. Well, it's only recently that we've had about the 120 years worth of good data that you could identify something that has a 60-year cyclicity. It's really hard to identify something, uh, 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 something having cyclical behavior until you have at least two full cycles of it. Okay. But there's a lot of emerging evidence that this AMO may play a major role in drought uh, in, in the central U.S. It may very well condition over, say, a given 30-year period whether you're likely to have drought or whether you're not. And so what we did was use a climate model. We were most interested in explaining those prolonged droughts of the medieval warm period 800 years ago, the last time that the Sandhills activated. But really, these results would be applicable principle for any time, any time that the AMO is in the right phase. Okay. So actually, what we did was we wanted to compare the relative effects of the AMO and La Nina. So correct me if I'm wrong, Song, but I believe this is the plot for La Nina results. Okay. We, we impose a La Nina SST anomaly in the tropical Pacific, and we get this kind of dry. Notice we have relatively dry conditions over the central U.S., this is what we get when we impose just the AMO. This is what we get when we impose the two together. Okay. Either one alone appears to be capable of causing drought in the uh, central U.S. We put the two together. We get sort of a double whammy. And again, since we were interested in the medieval warm period 800 years ago, this pattern of inferred drought, okay, reduced precipitation and, and hence inferred drought, would appear to be consistent with the data for where the dry conditions actually occurred. And the colors here, by the way, denote regions where the results were deemed statistically significant. Okay. So we've got La Nina, we've got the AMO, we've got probably other sea surface temperature patterns. Okay. They can induce drought. They reduce moisture transport into the region. They also tend to create high pressure over the region, and high pressure inhibits, especially the kind of like thunderstorms we associate the Great Plains in spring and summer. Okay, so that's remote factors. Again, the remote factors are most likely responsible for the initiation of a drought. Now let's look at local factors. A lot of my past research has involved these local factors, okay? And they usually, oops, they usually involve what we call land surface atmosphere interactions. Interactions between what's happening at the surface and in the atmosphere. In the Great Plains, reduced soil moisture is probably most important. Elsewhere, snow cover may be important. Over the U.S. West, snow cover can be uh, uh, quite important. I've got a master's student who's actually working on this relationship. Although there's some evidence that what's happening here may also affect the Great Plains. Okay. And then just as another type of land surface atmosphere interaction, of course, we all hear about the deforestation that's taking place in tropical regions. Deforestation actually plays a role similar to reducing soil moisture. They have a similar type of effect, although that's primarily tropical regions. Okay, coming back to reduced soil moisture. There's two 
effects. Okay, so the ground's drying out. It hasn't rained in a long time. Plants are continuing to extract what water they can from the soil. The ground gets really dry. Well, first of all, it simply means there's less moisture locally available through surface evapotranspiration. Okay, you're simply pumping less local moisture into the air. Is this important? Possibly, but really for us to get, get our rainfall, it really depends on this moisture being transported up from the Gulf of Mexico. So this local moisture may augment it, okay, but it's probably not as important as the second effect. Okay? What happens when you reduce soil moisture, okay, you can't evaporate. Evaporation is a cooling process. So instead, the ground heats up. The ground heats up. It heats the atmosphere above it. That warm air rises. And warming, warm air rising actually stabilizes the atmospheric column. Basically, what you're doing is you're putting more air aloft. You're stretching the column out. So you may have the same amount of air in the column, but you have more of it aloft. Air aloft, that's high pressure. Okay? That air rises and then is going to want to come back down. That's not conducive to rainfall. In particular, it's not conducive to forming our spring and summer thunderstorms. Okay, so again, now land surface effects in general, the idea is like the sea surface temperature anomalies, the land, oops, the land surface has a memory beyond the synoptic scale. What I mean here by synoptic scale is the typical three to four day you know, weather patterns that we experience, okay? And again, after sea surface temperatures, it's the most likely source for seasonal drought and maybe our even ability to forecast uh, drought. And again, it'll influence both temperature and precipitation rainfall. Okay. So the key question, this is the question that I ask in much of my work. Are these surface effects, such as changes in soil moisture or snow cover, are they passive elements or can they affect the evolution of climate on seasonal and longer timescales? A key question that I ask myself is, if I have knowledge of what the soil moisture is like, say, in the early spring, is that going to enable me to maybe predict, in some, you know, at least in a probabilistic sense, what precipitation is likely to be the following summer? Okay. So obviously, we need to understand, well, how is it that soil moisture works? Okay, reduce soil moisture. How does that reduce soil moisture, atmosphere interaction, what actually happens? Then we would have to evaluate this effect relative to things like the sea surface temperature anomalies I have just talked about. And then you've got to evaluate the time scales over which they're likely to be effective. So again, we can get the climate model. And the nice thing about climate models are you can play whatever game you want to do. So we played a game. Um, we said, basically, this, is a, this region here is the, actually the Mississippi-Missouri uh, drainage area, including things like the Ohio and stuff, Great Plains being on and through here. And we said, let's create desert conditions. Let's just start the model with the ground as absolutely dry as we can make it without having the model blow up. Turns out if you turn soil moisture to exactly 0.000, the model can't handle it and it blows up. So you, you, you turn it down to about you know, a fraction of a percent of the total moisture that the soil can hold. We run the thing. A year later, okay, this is after a year. We start a run on the 1st of June. The following June, what do we see in the model? 
we see that soil moisture is still greatly reduced here in the central U.S. It's a lot warmer. These, these are differences relative to a long-term mean in the model, okay? So again, I can't really, don't have time to get into the units of soil moisture, soil water, but this is a fairly large reduction. Here, in terms of temperature, we have up to 12 degrees Celsius warmer than the long-term mean. Well, that's 18 degrees Fahrenheit, or about 7, 16, 17, okay? We also tend to have lower surface pressures. Remember, these warmer conditions, they create higher pressure aloft, but that higher pressure aloft does drive some of the air out laterally, so you get lower pressure at the surface. It's what's called a thermal low. It's the kind of thermal low you get in the desert, okay? And we have a reduction in precipitation, pretty significant reduction over the central U.S. And yes, we have increases elsewhere. So maybe in the northern Rockies, they're cheering when we have, you know, one of these droughts, okay, because maybe they benefit. That's another thing, you know, drought doesn't occur everywhere. For every person who's suffering a drought, somebody else is probably having, you know, sufficient precipitation or maybe even too much precipitation, i.e. floods. Okay, so we can, you know, run the climate model and we can play games and see what effect reductions in soil moisture have. Okay, so we just started with more realistic. You know, that was an extreme case, a desert case. Uh, we can do more realistic runs, and we can start with, you know, the atmosphere, the initial state of the atmosphere taken from a normal year or a dry year, the initial state of the soil moisture taken from a normal year or a dry year, and we can see how quickly they compensate. Okay, well, to, to make a long story short, we see all these curves kind of coming together all at once. Here we've got runs starting in the middle of June. By early July, all these curves coming together suggest that these sort of reasonable, these fairly small soil moisture anomalies don't have much of a persistent effect, okay? Turns out in these runs, the internal variability of the model and the initial state due to the atmosphere due to things like SST anomalies was more important. Okay, so if, if the ground, if the upper, upper, you know, half foot or foot, the ground's a little bit dry, you know, in March or April, maybe that's not so bad. Maybe that's not really saying anything about drought the following summer. Instead, what, what looks like is really important is, it's how deep in the soil are the dry conditions going? What's the vertical profile of soil moisture, okay? So one individual growing season, you know, dry, a drought in one individual growing season may not be enough to dry out the ground so that it has a real substantive effect on drought. But what happens if you have several years of dry conditions happening in a row? This appears to have happened in the southeast. They had enough dry years in a row that they reached a threshold where basically the ground has just dried out, okay? Then it looks like you can have a big effect because what happens is, see, if you put a dry anomaly just in the upper layers, it can restore itself very, very quickly. Yeah, you can dry out the uppermost soil, get one good rain, boom, it's fine again. Dry out the entire soil column, and again, these are runs for an entire year, okay, and it can take a long time, even for the surface, to moisten back up. <coughs> because what happens is, yeah, it rains, but if the ground is really dry at depth, 
those deeper layers of soil, they just suck the water down. And so the surface will dry out very quickly again. Okay, this is just a model run that shows that we can actually simulate these types of drying at depth. The key message here, the real reason why I, um, first of all, the deep layers show little year-to-year -year fluctuation. They're very slow to respond. And so what we inferred uh, from this study, published um, about five or six years ago, was that large changes in deep layer soil moisture are more likely to impact historic and prehistoric extended periods of drought rather than year-to-year -year variability. Okay. So soil moisture is probably most important for things like the dust bowl droughts or the even really long droughts that we have before the historic record. Probably less important for an individual year. Snow, we can also look at snow in sort of the same way. Okay. We can say, okay, let there be a lot of extra snow over the western U.S. where the mountains are and they, they get all the snow. Okay, and that snow cover can take a long time to melt. Okay, well, snow is a highly reflective surface, so it probably comes as no surprise that you get cooler conditions where the snow cover is. Notice, though, that here over the Great Plains, we actually get warmer conditions. So perhaps in a year where we have augmented snow in the western U.S., it might stay cooler to the west, but as circulation patterns change, indicated here by sea level pressure, maybe we actually have warmer conditions over the, over the Great Plains. This is why snow cover in the west might actually have an impact on the Great Plains, too. Now, the interesting thing is we do the same sort of predictability studies we do for soil moisture, and we find that year-to-year -year variations in snow cover may actually have a much more significant impact on precipitation the following season than soil moisture, okay? Notice, especially down here, this bundle of curves and this curve never come together, demonstrating that through this entire, this is a three-month period, you've got some pretty good predictability, okay? So snow cover, to the extent that it has an impact on the Great Plains, may well factor into what is happening year to year, okay? And here's just some indications of how um, what the impact of snow cover can be on something called the North American monsoon. We tend to think of the North American monsoon from the U.S. Southwest, but it's really the Mexican plateau. And depending on how you define it, you can actually think of our rainy season, April through June, as a monsoon, as sort of a pre-monsoon. If you think about the circulation patterns that actually induce the uh, monsoon, the southwest U.S. And it appears that enhanced snow cover can definitely lead to a reduction in this precipitation, okay? So while it's primarily an impact, uh, western snow cover would primarily impact precipitation in the west, it's quite likely that it has an impact on the Great Plains as well. Basically sets up a more southerly flow, bringing warmer air into the Great Plains. So there's an increased precipitation, less clear. Okay, so sort of summarizing local versus uh, remote effects. Here we have sea surface temperature anomalies and just internal variability in the atmosphere. Initially, that's causing the drought. Notice percentage of influence on drought, basically 100%. It's initiating the drought. As time goes on, the, the sea surface temperature anomaly may become more and less and less important, but things like soil moisture, snow cover, become more and more important. And then eventually, just our daily weather patterns, our day-to-day -day variations in weather patterns can act to remove the drought conditions.
Okay, so that's something about the causes of present-day drought. What might happen in the future? For example, what will happen with predicted greenhouse gas global warming? Oops. Indi indications from the recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, AR4 reports, as well as their previous reports, suggest that in this greenhouse gas-induced global warming world, precipitation may decrease over the Great Plains region, though the models disagree on the magnitude of the decrease. And some of the models actually have an increase, okay? Not all the models, not a uniform decrease across all the models. However, keep in mind, though, that even if precipitation remains unchanged, even if precipitation is exactly the same in the future, the warmer temperatures that go hand-in-hand hand with global warming will increase the likelihood of drought by enhancing potential evapotranspiration. Remember, you can get drought by increasing evaporation as well as by reducing precipitation. And we did a study a few years ago. This was using the, the um, previous, the AR3 IPCC runs in conjunction with some colleagues at Oak Ridge <coughs> excuse me, National Lab where we did a clustering approach. So we could kind of, rather than just look at temperature, just look at precipitation, just look at soil moisture. We used a statistical clustering technique so we could look at the effects of all three of them simultaneously. Oops. And um, here we are comparing in Northern Hemisphere winter, the first decade of this century, with the last decade of this century, and doing the same thing for July. Okay, basically, when you see these green and yellow colors, it denotes conditions that are warmer and drier. Red conditions denote warmer and wetter. I wasn't the one who made these plots. If I had made the plots, I probably would have had red for warmer and drier and green for warmer and wetter. But the person who made the plots, he, I don't know, he, he thought he had an artistic flair or what. But, so basically, this shows that at least in this model that we used, conditions across the Great Plains are likely to be warmer and drier. Basically, precipitation, temperature, and soil moisture all reduce hand in hand. Okay, along those lines, those are results from a global climate model at a resolution of maybe 200 kilometers, you know, uh, almost 300 miles. You know, Nebraska is like, what, two, three grid points in such a model. Horizontally very coarse, very hard to say anything with certainty from a model with that coarser resolution for a region as specific as the Great Plains. What we want instead is a high-resolution regional climate model which is really, it's a GCM run for a limited domain at a very high resolution. And you can force this thing at its lateral boundaries from a GCM. So we, uh, Clint Rowe, my co-PI in this, is sitting over in the audience over there. We're in the process of setting up and making some model, regional model runs for the Great Plains with an expected hopeful completion date of fall 2008. We're going to do 2025, 2050, 2075, and 2099, 2099, forcing with the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, their global climate model. We're going to run it at 12 kilometers for the Great Plains. So it should be the most comprehensive set to date of detailed model-based predictions for the Great Plains. Okay. And it allow, will allow impacts to be assessed for agriculture, municipal and industrial water supplies, invasive plant and insect species, et cetera, et cetera. 
and I note that this is made with support of the UNL Office of Research for what we're calling the new UNL Regional Climate Modeling Facility. Okay, do we play a role in drought? Well, if you're cutting down all the forests in the tropics, yeah, you may be making drought in the tropics. What about us here in the Great Plains? Well, all the rage right now is growing corn for, uh, you know, ethanol, biofuels. Okay, great, but, you know, corn, you know, may not be, maybe that's, you know, better to use more cellulose <coughs> plants rather than using the, the sugar from a corn kernel. Maybe we get technology developed enough, maybe we can use something like switchgrass a primary component of tall prairie grass. There's a lot of attention being paid to this. President Bush mentioned it in his 2006 State of the Union address and all that, and so DOE is throwing hundreds of, Department of Energy is throwing hundreds of millions of dollars at it. So maybe we're going to have a large-scale transition from growing corn to growing switchgrass. I just can't say switch from corn to switchgrass. It just doesn't work. Um, in the Great Plains. You know, this may be, you know, we're at the edge. Water resources is always an issue in the Great Plains anyway. It's quite likely that switchgrass may utilize water resources more efficiently than corn. But this also means less water cycle through the vegetation and into the atmosphere. That's broadly similar to what happens with reduced soil moisture. Implications, okay. This reduction in water input to the atmosphere means less water available for local and regional precipitation. Also affects the surface energy balance, resulting in more sensible long-wave heating of the atmosphere. Just like soil moisture works, okay? Basically, uh, we do soil moisture. You stabilize the atmospheric column. You don't have quite as much water available for precipitation. It gets warmer and drier, both of which might help negate any increased water efficiency of switchgrass. Okay, I think I'll skip the table, move right to the plot. Basically, we run, take the regional climate model, we run it for the Great Plains. We t picked a year, and we just said, okay, what happens if everywhere in the Great Plains is growing corn, far-fetched, but when you see what they're doing in the sand hills and whatnot, who knows, in a few years away we're going, every possible acre of the Great Plains might be planted in corn. And took that and <coughs> changed it to switchgrass instead. Well, here we see... This is a plot of cha the change in the, da <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the daily maximum temperature. And we see that almost all of the model domain temperatures increase by uniformly about 4 to 5 degrees Celsius, okay, 6 to 8 degrees Fahrenheit. Precipitation generally reduces. Here is just in the model control where it rained. And here's where the rain reduces when you have switchgrass instead of corn. Notice that everywhere where, it was, where you were getting a lot of rain, you get less rain. It's up to a 25% reduction in precipitation. Okay? So the implication is if you have, plant a lot of switchgrass instead of corn, it might get warmer and drier. Or a more insidious way of looking at it is because in, the, in a state like Nebraska, you really need to irrigate corn to be able to grow it. Maybe through all the irrigated corn that we've grown, we've kept the climate of Nebraska artificially cool and wet over the past few decades relative to what it otherwise might have wanted to be. So, in summary, to wrap up, drought is a ubiquitous feature of the Great Plains. If anything, the historic period 
has been relatively wet. Sea surface temperature patterns likely initiate most droughts. Local feedbacks involving soil moisture and snow cover can enhance and prolong drought. Drought, if anything, drought is likely to become even more common in the future, both because of greenhouse gas-induced global warming and because of local land use practices. There's even other reasons, uh, other things I couldn't go into, such as reduced snowpack in the Rocky Mountains that may make this greenhouse gas-induced global warming even worse. So, if anything, drought's likely to become worse, not better, and we'd best be prepared. Thank you. Are there any questions? I'm sure there will be. The question was whether greater snowpack or lesser snowpack in the mountains would affect the uh, Great Plains. It could work either way, okay. Typically, these things, like with soil moisture, reduced soil moisture tends to be more important than increased soil moisture. We suspect with snow cover that increased snow cover is likely to be more important than reduced snow cover. But either one could have an effect, and one would expect opposing effects. And the question was whether the drought of the 1930s was caused by the oceans being cooler or warmer. Uh, it's, that's probably not the best way to pose the question. We very strongly suspect that the, the drought of the 1930s was initiated and maintained for a while by specific sea surface temperature anomaly patterns in the ocean. And there's been some work done by some scientists at NASA who have taken a climate model and imposed the observed sea surface temperature patterns of the 1930s, run the model, and yes, they do tend to get uh, a drought like the Dust Bowl drought. So it's best to think not in terms of just overall warmer or cooler, but what the specific sea surface temperature anomaly patterns are, because typically the way that works is it'll be warmer in one region and cooler in another region. But definitely that um, played a role in at least initiating the drought, and then quite frankly, you know, some of the land practices that we had back then may well have acted to uh, enhance and prolong the drought. That is an excellent question. The question was, thinking about sea surface temperature anomalies, what percentage of time is the pattern in an anomaly, and what percentage of the time are they normal? Well, normal is usually something that's seen only as you're going from one side to the other, okay? We think about Enzo, El Nino, La Nina. Normal sea surface temperatures are really just the sea surface temperatures you see when you're in between an El Nino or a La Nina, or when you're going from one to the other. So what hap the best way to ask that question is, what is the typical time scale of these type of sea surface temperature anomaly patterns? For Enzo, typically two to seven years, okay? For something like the uh, Atlantic Multidecadal Oscillation, 30 to 60 years, okay? So the time scale of the anomalies is a very important question. But, but again, it begs the question, what is normal? Well, normal is just you know, a transition from one to the other. And the question was, because uh, climate models can be used to simulate uh, sea surface temperatures, how reliable are they? Well, the, the first thought that comes to mind is how reliable is any climate model for anything? Okay, well, you know, it's debatable. Uh, they do a reasonable job. Uh, if, if, if you have a full-blown ocean model that handles all the circulation in the ocean, they do a reasonable job, but not great job, of simulating present-day uh, sea surface temperature patterns. What some groups have done, uh, I know a group over in England has done this, they've done some very, very long runs, just let the model run 
run the model for 1,000 or 1,500 years, and they find that the model does generate the uh, Enzo-like patterns. It does generate AMO-like patterns. So the climate models on their own are able to simulate, at least to some extent, these SST anomaly patterns that we associate with drought. Although, of course, that's, you know, there's, doing it that way, you can't attribute to any particular drought. All you can do is look at the statistics of the long run. The, the question was whether, whether reservoirs, and the, and the reservoirs filling up uh, uh, since the late 40s, you know, in addition to the irrigation, whether that could have an impact. Maybe, at least locally, we know that a, a lake that's large enough we know can have an influence at least on the climate of the region surrounding the lake. The question is whether any of the reservoirs in, say, Nebraska are large enough that you would really have a discernible effect. I suspect not, but that's a good question. So a bit of an open question was, can we use the, the high-resolution regional runs that we're doing for the Great Plains? Can we use them and you know, best be prepared to help come up with better practices to deal with, with droughts? And um, yes, very much, that's exactly what these runs are aimed at. They're aimed at understanding the, and, and getting a better handle on what the impacts of, of drought and the other climate changes may be. That's not something, an area that I directly work in, but we want to feed right into things like the National Drought Mitigation Center. Mike Hayes is, is a, is a co-PI on this project for that very reason, in fact. The question is, is the difference between just having natural prairie and having switchgrass that would be, has to be cut up and hauled away. Uh, interesting question, but to be honest, I don't think our climate models, even as robust as they are, even at, say, a 12-kilometer resolution, really are, would be able to, to simulate that level of change. Okay. So, yeah, it might be, but I don't think my model could, 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 could say at this point. The question is, what would happen if we go to uh, a large-scale transition from corn to switchgrass? What would happen to the aquifers, presumably because we're having to pump um, less uh, groundwater for irrigation? Again, presumably, or maybe better said, hopefully, they will tend to come up. I mean, uh, I suspect that even, even, if, even if we have some reduction in precipitation, the real reason why those aquifers you know, are shrinking is because of all the water that's being taken out. If we don't take as much water out, they will be replenished, or one would anticipate that they will be replenished. How long that will take, I really don't know. The question is, is uh, one of the purposes of my modeling uh, being able to predict drought? If we turn that around and say, be able to predict precipitation on seasonal and longer time scales, and of course, predicting precipitation is a critical part of predicting drought, I would hope so. And NASA seems to hope so, too, because they gave uh, myself and my co-PI $600,000 over three years to look into the problem. So yes, hopefully yes. There are indications that we can have some, at least probabilistic, uh, predictive skill. Uh, we're, we're specifically looking at knowledge, whether knowledge of winter snow cover or springtime soil moisture can enable you to have some predictive power. Uh, you know, know a season to two seasons in advance what the probabilistic probabilities are of having lesser or greater than normal precipitation in the summer. So we're looking at that seasonal time scale primarily. And uh, the jury basically is is out, but so far the results suggest that soil moisture is problematical, snow cover, we may very well actually be able to have some real predictive power. Soil moisture is probably only on longer time scales, a, a, a decade, decadal time, time scale, or maybe several year time scale. Oh, one more, okay. 
the, the question, if I, if I may condense and summarize your question, your question was sort of two-part. One is something about the development, you know, how have these climate models been developed? And two, do I think that they're really any good? Okay. Well, for the first part of the question, my immediate reaction is, do you have a few hours? <laughs> mm. These are very sophisticated computer tools, okay? And they, they, for many, many aspects of climate, they probably do do a very good job, okay? Uh, what, what the models are really good at doing is giving, they give you a quantitative prediction, but the qualitative implication of that prediction is probably better than the quantitative simulation itself. Now, do I trust a, a model that says we're going to have, you know, the, the Earth as a, as a whole is going to warm? We're going to get global temperature increase of, say, 4 degrees Celsius, you know, with a doubling of CO2 as one model. Another model might say 5 degrees. Another model might say 3 degrees. What I conclude from that is, is there is almost certainly or very likely to be a significant warming. What extent that of that warming, whether it's going to be three degrees or five degrees, that I have much less confidence in. But the basic qualitative result that the Earth will overall warm, that I have a lot of confidence in. It's the details that you have to be more careful about. 